Episode 1. Getting to the starting line. Camino man, Camino man, does whatever Camino can. Camino man, Camino man, Camino man. This little song is how I remember being introduced to the idea of walking the Camino by one of my older brothers, Ross. Now the Camino is a network of old pilgrim walking routes across Europe. But those in Spain are the best known. Ross had just walked the Camino Frances, the most well-known route, from Saint-Jean-de-Pied-de-Pont in France to Santiago de Compostela, the Cathedral of St. James in Santiago, Spain, with Mark, my younger brother, I have four brothers, by the way, and two sisters, and Peter, a family friend. And as is the way with the Wilson family, we had gathered to eat, to hear about their travels, to see the photographs, and to eat. It's something we like to do eat. Later on, I asked Ross why he decided to walk the Camino. He gave me many reasons, but essentially it was for the adventure. The adventure of being somewhere I hadn't been before and meeting people I had never met before. My younger brother Mark, who didn't walk the entire distance and met Ross and Peter somewhere along the route, gave me a page of reasons, mainly spiritual, like atoning for my sins and walking for others but also having the chance to remove myself from life, from my lo- normal life. Uh, by the way, he's a funeral director. I asked Peter why he walked it, and he said, well, Ross told me we would only be walking five kilometres a day, and we didn't, and that we would be going through particular towns, and we didn't, and that it would be an amazing experience. And it was. And that's sort of what Ross, Mark and Peter sound like. But at the beginning, I didn't know any of this. Ross did his Camino Man dance and the three of them gave me three small gifts. There was the traditional St James Camino shell that every pilgrim or peregrino carries on their backpack, a Camino-styled buff and a, a bookmark that said, Never Surrender, St James Way. Now, I didn't think much of them at the time, but I kept them. I considered using the bookmark, but I didn't, and I don't wear buffs. And I thought about throwing away the shell, but I kept it. And I never thought about any of them until in the middle of my two years from hell. They started with the end of a relationship towards the end of 2016. I'm still not sure exactly what happened, but she ended it with one of those, it's not you, it's me, reasons. And I simply said, well, if this is what you want, as long as you're being honest with me. It took me a long time to realise that was a lie. As I had accepted what she told me, indeed I accept when anyone tells me as true. As I had no reason to believe otherwise, and it was supposed to be one of those personal revelation reasons, and... It's just at the time I didn't realise how deeply it affected me. I was in love with her. Being with her was my first relationship in years after seeing my son through high school. I'm divorced, by the way. And warning myself off any relationship till he had got through high school and this had been a wonderful relationship. At least I thought so. And I know she enjoyed our time together, but... Well, I'm not perfect. I made mistakes. It was just 
I had to accept her decision, no matter how much I hurt, and no matter how much I went over everything in my head, and no matter how much I was also to blame. So I did a lot of what other people do after a relationship bust up and buried myself in work. Well, I tried to. Starting a new career in your 50s as a high school teacher while in post-breakup territory was not a good idea. It was something I said I would never do, be a high school teacher. But I had done some casual tutoring at university and in tertiary education and I'd done okay. <laughs> I even won an award for being teacher of the year but I also made mistakes. Who, who doesn't? And in 2016, when this work dried up, I commenced work as a casual or temp high school teacher. At the start, it was a get in, get the work done, keep the students in the room and get out sort of gig. I made mistakes then and I made more mistakes at the start of the following year, 2017, when I got a placement for all of term one. I was still learning, but... I let students get under my skin and they ate away at what was left of my confidence. I was teased and bullied and, and treated badly and no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't seem to earn any respect. Probably because, in hindsight, I didn't respect myself. I worked hard, but I wasn't coping. And I was pretty good at hiding that, pretty good at hiding most of my problems. I'd been doing that for years. So I kept smiling and hoped it would get better. It didn't. But I did tell my head teacher at the time that I had problems and I did seek counselling through the employee assistance program. But it was just a four session turn it around and get you back to work approach before you had to start paying for each session. Somehow I got through to the end of the first term. And I got through to the end of term two by having a few positive experiences at a different high school. And in my heart, I didn't want to go back to the previous school. But I did. I did it for the money. I did it because I said I would go back. They had offered me three weeks work. I, I did it because teaching at high school was supposed to be my life now. I did it and I made more mistakes as I didn't really want to be there. Now, these mistakes didn't catch up with me in any official capacity till the following year. I'd had an inkling of future problems at the end of 2017, but I basically hoped it would go away, thought about not continuing. But when this school rang me in 2018, I took the work. Firstly for two weeks, then four weeks, then seven weeks, then the entire term. And just when I thought I had turned the corner by winning a temporary contract for the rest of the year, I got slapped in the face with allegations of professional misconduct at the beginning of term two. I was suspended. And 22 weeks later, my employment was terminated. It was 22 weeks of initially waiting for the police to decide that they were not interested in the allegations. 22 weeks of an independent officer investigating and then recommending a supported return to work. 22 weeks of HR reinvestigating, reinterviewing, and deciding that I wouldn't be returning to work after all. And it was 22 weeks of avoiding colleagues and students, both physically and verbally. 22 weeks of not being able to talk about any of it and of doubting myself. 
doubting everything I ever was and everything I had ever done and everything that I thought I could do or be and of allowing all my old self-doubt to creep back in. And it was in the middle of all this that I was slapped in the face again. I was walking home one afternoon along a main road next to a suburban park, Islington Park, near to where I lived, when just after 3pm in the afternoon, I was assaulted. The man I recognised from where I lived, a man with mental health issues but living in the community, he walked the streets three times a day in some sort of days and asked people for money outside the local Woolworths supermarket who asked for free coffees at local cafes, whom I'd walked past before and smiled and nodded at, even given money to him when he asked me. He assaulted me. Jesus assaulted me. I, I called him Jesus. He looked like Jesus. Well, that afternoon I smiled at Jesus and he walked past me, turned and hit me in the head the left side of my head, on that side of my jaw, from behind, totally unexpected. And wipe that smile off my face. Why did he do it? He was probably off his medication, Steve, feeling paranoid and saw you as a threat. Uh, me? Um, by the way, that's my counsellor. Jesus hit me and I crashed to the grass verge. But I was able to jump up straight away. I looked at him and in a voice I didn't recognise, I blurted out, What did I ever do you? And his white, wide-eyed eyes just stared back at me. Stay away from me. I raised my hands in some sort of defensive position because his hands were up ready to hit me again. He wanted to go on with it and all I could do with my arms in the air was to yell out, I backed away from him onto the edge of the road, but he circled around me. I watched him. I thought if I could get across the road, he wouldn't come after me. Get on the ground. Get on the ground. I was not getting on the ground. I saw a gap in the oncoming traffic and crossed to the middle of the road with cars speeding past and then to the footpath on the other side. He came after me. I ran. He chased me. I ran past the local service station, crossing a street, and with my lungs busting and my heart pumping, I turned to see if he was still coming after me. He was. And a white car flashed in between us. Get in the car! We're on the phone to the police! Two young people, Jess and Sam, that was Jess, by the way, who had seen what had happened, pulled over in their car to help, thought, what do we do? And then saw me run across the road. They were in that car. Now, I jumped in and I got out of there. And we stopped down at a nearby street. And when I realised Jesus wasn't coming after me, I cried. It took eight months and two different investigating officers for the police to charge him. It was eight months of looking over my shoulder, eight months of seeing Jesus walking the streets of Mayfield, of seeing him cross my street as he lived near me, seeing him at the exit to Woolworths and panicking. 
seeing him in the car park, seeing him walking ahead of me on the street and slowing down so I wouldn't have to catch up with him. Wondering if he would attack me or anyone else. Calling the police and asking them what was happening, what was going on, and when will he be charged? Even though I made a report, made a statement, three days later, identified him that night and had two witnesses. It still took eight months and another statement and an identification process for them to charge Jesus. And then seven weeks of waiting for the court listing and finally he pled guilty. He'll be sentenced under the mental health provisions of the Act and have an enforceable order to take his medication. My counsellor again. And all the time I was almost bumping into former work colleagues and knowing I would not well, I was not able to talk about what I'd been through at work. So I would avoid them. It was confidential. It still is. So I can't even talk about it now. And it was in the midst of all this that I decided firstly to have a year off. A year out from everything to do whatever it took to get my life on a new path, to find a new way, to in some way find my old self again. And it was in the midst of all this that I found my Camino shell and my buff and my bookmark, Never Surrender, St James Way. And I decided to walk the Camino. It seemed like a good idea. And the more I thought about it, the more I realised I wanted to break with my old habits and make new habits. I wanted to put myself in situations where I had to do something different, go somewhere different, and where all I had to do or was rely on myself. I wanted to go away for 12 months to Europe and travel. But I settled on three months without a visa. You can visit the countries in the Schengen Agreement in Europe for 90 days in a 180-day period. It was something I never did when I was young, when I had just left university. And now I wanted to get out of this straitjacket comfort zone, and, you know, away from the whirlpool of allegations and ramifications and what my life had become, and challenge myself. And I liked the simple idea of walking and finding somewhere to stay and finding something to eat and getting up in the morning and doing it again and again and again. So I read everything I could. Guidebooks, novels, blogs, anything. I bought a guidebook, a credential, a pack and a pack cover and packed light. And on my 55th birthday, the 15th of May, I flew out of Sydney bound for Iran on the French-Spanish border via Doha and Madrid. My great adventure had begun. I was about to walk the Camino. But not the Camino Frances. No. I chose to walk the Camino del Norte, the older, more traditional, tougher pilgrimage route across the north coast of Spain. I wasn't walking the Camino Frances like my brothers. The Camino del Norte is some 830 to 865 kilometres in length. It climbs and descends over 12,000 metres with walks across hilltop bluffs and sandy beaches with hostels and medieval monasteries, crossing through cosmopolitan cities with dramatic cathedrals and stunning museums and tiny villages and forests and farms. I got that from a guidebook. 
I arrived at Donostia San Sebastian Airport and walked into Iron to the Albergue de Peregrinos, the municipal albergue or hostel run by volunteers. It was a strange combination of octagonal brick buildings joined together over two floors. Being early in the day, I tried to find the bridge over the river that was the border between France and Spain, the official start of the Camino del Norte. But I got lost. I didn't know where I was or where it was, and my guidebook wasn't much help. And at this time, I had no mobile coverage. I had listened to my older brother, Ross, who said I wouldn't need to use my smartphone as I could use Wi-Fi in the albergues. Well... I wasn't in the Adelberge, and I couldn't work out the directions on the small map in the guidebook. So I traced my steps back to the Adelberge. It wasn't open. I waited around in a nearby park, read my book, and eventually met some other peregrinos, pilgrims, who were waiting for the Adelberge to open. And when it did open, a local volunteer got me started. Hola, Esteban. Hola. Hablas español o es medio para ti eh, inglés? Um, English? And he gave me the first stamp in my credential. My Camino passport. My record of walking the Camino. And I paid a donation for a bed for that night. I went upstairs and claimed my bunk bed and then went out, bought something to eat and some food for the next day. Came back and went to bed. I was excited. I didn't know what else to do. I didn't sleep much and it rained heavily that night and into the next morning. But I was ready to start. I was about to start the Camino. <laughs>